There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is World's Greatest Con. I'm Brian Brushwood. Yuri Geller has two reputations. One as a spoon bender, somebody who can melt metal with his mind. That one doesn't scare me. What scares me is his second reputation. As a guy who sues anyone who calls him a fraud. I'm not going to call Yuri Geller a fraud, but I will speculate in my heart of hearts that if he were a fraud, the action of whitewashing his own reputation, 50 years of deceptions, falsely accepting fraudulent payments for prospecting to find oil that he may or may not have ever found, the idea of somebody like that being able to get the blessing of the paper of record, the gray lady herself, the New York Times, if any of that were true, it just might be the world's greatest con. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It's Brian. Gather round, all you rogues and scoundrels, because we are joined again by my co-creator and partner in crime, Justin Robert Young. Justin, how was your week? Uh, it's been a very interesting and fun week, uh, and we're going to talk about why, which is the news peg of this. But I also want to point out that the bulk of this episode is going to be a great interview and conversation that we did with Michael Shermer. It is a great conversation. The opportunity to sit down with one of my intellectual heroes, 
was fantastic. And it seems like he's very appreciative of our work. And we're going to get to that. But first, a bit of news. A news about the news, which for a journalism major is my favorite kind. Whenever <laughs> we can uh, discuss journalism as the main character of the story. The New York Times published an article one week ago as we record this entitled The End of the Magic World's 50-Year Grudge. In 1973, Yuri Geller claimed to bend metal with his mind on live television. Skeptics couldn't beat him. Now they've joined him by David Siegel. And what follows is a pretty lengthy and I would say charitable I think I have been more coarse on other platforms that we are on that usually have yeah, uh, no. a little bit more. It, 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 I, I think we could speak plainly about this. Something really curious. We do a po comedy podcast every Tuesday night. And when we both read this article, we just kind of rolled our eyes and we're like, Yuri Geller is going to Geller. And we didn't think much of it. And then somebody specifically started asking us for responses. And it turns out once we started talking about it, I don't know about you, but I became angry and specifically if you have not read it it is explicit in things that i don't think are universally agreed upon and would not take a lot to scratch the surface and find an opposing opinion specifically the idea that yuri geller is just a coy trickster who has uh, brought material benefit to the world his entire 50 year career. And now, despite the fact that Yuri will never say that what he does is uh, magic trickery or illusions, he has found a coterie of magicians who have laid down their qualms that they might have had. They have all agreed that back in the day they might have been sour pusses. And now uh, we can all understand that he's just this strong kayfabe professional wrestling uh, character that has uh, brought such joy to the world over the last 50 years. And artistically speaking, a case could be made that way, but I think you had a very good metaphor of a dividing line. You said that it's as though the undertaker accepted millions of dollars to shoot lasers out of his eyes or something. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, the the article hand waves away a lot of the talking points that have been made against Yuri Geller of uh, specifically that he has taken money from people uh, under the assumption that he had real powers. The author hand waves away the idea that he took money from mining companies to find oil or ore. We don't know exactly what those deals were for, what he was looking for. And indeed, he covers for Yuri by saying, even Yuri doesn't really remember how any of that went. Yeah. So, okay. And then it, it waits until about three fourths of the way through the article to even mention what season three of this podcast was all about. Uh, the battle between him and James Randi, the amazing James Randi. And that's, I don't think in any way historically accurate. You can have a lot of different opinions about Yuri Geller and James Randi, but there is no doubt that they are the Batman and Joker of each other's careers. And you can decide who is, who is who I know. I certainly have my designations personally, but the, the idea that you would wait in a story that promised a resolution to a 50 year grudge without mentioning the chief antagonist of the grudge 
is pretty remarkable uh, in in how that even hits the paper. Well, and I, I, we're kind of dancing around it. It's like uh, what I notice most about the article is, uh, boy, do they not spell out any specific detriment to society that was yes. committed by somebody who performed magic tricks and with a straight face claimed, in my opinion, that they were actual miracles bestowed upon him from an extraterrestrial force. And in further back and forth between the author and other critics, including Kostya Kimlet on Twitter, shout out to Kostya, he has said, can you please name what the harm is? What, what, what the material harm is from almost a legal definition uh, to which some have said, many have said, you know, you could listen to season three of uh, World's Greatest Con where we make a very compelling argument that not only would the experiments that Mike and Steve participated in as boys have existed if Yuri Geller was not saying that he had successfully demonstrated psychic abilities at the Stanford Research Institute, but we wouldn't have had the emotional damage that eventually uh, uh, reflects from it. So it's, if we're looking at adjusted for inflation, millions of dollars spent, not to mention, and I think anybody who's been involved in academics understands that there is a zero sum game when it comes to money that well, comes especially into research. in military and defense investments. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there is a zero sum world. So any dollar that is spent in that world is a dollar not spent on something else. And as we know now, something that would have maybe yielded a greater idea of our of our world and reality more so than parapsychology did. Economists talk a bit about the seen world and the unseen world or the seen benefit and the unseen detriment. You you see people laughing and clapping and saying hooray and shouting the word bend and that all feels good. What you don't see are the knock on detriments of millions of dollars wasted of as in season three lives damaged mm -hmm. by the experience of trying to write what, what we perceive as a, a deep wrong that happened. And to see somebody whitewash this reputation so casually to in the same article appear to admit that he's fraudulent, but roll his eyes and say, it's like you're shouting. There's no Santa Claus to a bunch of preschoolers like our, which, which for folks who have not read, that is his word for word characterization of the modern critical take on Yuri Geller. Yes, that is, that is the stated thesis that he has, which if, is if, if quit, you, Quit yeah. trying to correct the record, jerks, nerds. Yeah, if you are critical of Yuri Geller, then you are running into a preschool and screaming that Santa Claus doesn't exist because it is more impactful for our society that Yuri be able to live on as a tremendous uh, uh, living version of a god, even if, wink, wink, we all know, and he, wink, wink, doesn't know because he went to Blackpool and... Uh, uh, he is involved in in this book, which is the news peg of it. And I have a little surprise for you. Oh, no. Oh, no. Justin, you called me and said, hey, we should maybe record a little something about this. I did not know I was being lured into a trap. What is about to happen? We have a little bit of a different take on it based on our research that we did for this season. Yes. Uh, 
none of which really made it into the season, but we can now reveal it. So I want to give credit to Dustin Dean. He uh, has a website called oneahead.com, which is a magic and mentalism uh, news site by the looks of it. And Dustin did a good job. One might say a better job than the author of the New York Times article because he contacted the news peg of that New York Times article. The book. Specifically, the author of the book Bend It Like Geller by Ben Harris, which was published by Vanishing Inc., is the reason why, theoretically, that news article can say that skeptics have laid down their arms against Geller. What seems to be misrepresented in that article is that Bend It Like Geller is... This is according to Harris as being interviewed by oneahead.com. The author of the book. The author of the book. My book, Bend It Like Geller, is about the history and evolution of bending spoons. It is research collection of trick techniques. This is all caps because I assume this came through in an email. This was not made clear in the New York Times piece. Vanishing Inc. did not promote my book as being about Geller. They published my book, Bend It Like Geller. It is an expose of methods for spoon bending. It is not a Geller biography, and it is a skeptical work. So. That seems to be a bit different than the way that it is portrayed in the New York Times, doesn't it? Yes. And uh, <laughs> at this point, we begin to speculate about like uh, how the mental machinations of publishers are. Uh, I, I, I don't I don't want to just make up a story about how this came to be, but it does sound that concrete facts are uh you and i firmly believe that geller is doing magic tricks yeah uh you and i believe that james randy has his whole quest was will you please just admit these are magic tricks yeah. and geller refu- refused to you and i believe that this new york times article appears to shrug its shoulders and just say why who cares whether like, we all know it's a magic trick why don't you quit being babies about it and uh uh it sounds now as though the title and subhead of this article were based on a absolutely erroneous, fallacious contradiction to what the book is about. Interesting, huh? So then Harris, again, being interviewed for oneahead.com, give them a lot of credit, goes on to talk about how this article came to be. Says what was supposed to be a story about my book and a celebration of spoon bending's allure to the modern magician for over 50 years turned into something else. But that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Siegel wrote a confronting piece. It's his job. The fallout is the result. So, I mean, not for nothing, we do take a moment to celebrate the poetry of spoon bending as a way to go. We, we agree do. with we Ben do. Harris on that's a very, very good magic trick for a mentalist Amazing. to do. Amazing. And by the way, Banachek, who obviously p- plays a gigantic role in, in season three, as we tell his and Mike's story of project alpha is quoted extensively in bend it like Geller, because most of the actual techniques that are used for metal bending in our modern world are not Geller's. They're Banachek. Right, because Banachek out Gellard Geller, as we talk yes. about in season three, there's that wonderful moment when he's watching the inspiration for all the work he's done and he realizes, oh, I'm way better I'm, than I'm him. I'm a better magician than, than this guy. But it got me thinking Uh-oh. about 
some of our conversations that we had both with Mike and Banachek, and specifically around the idea of magic or miracle. Because, and I don't know how much you remember this, when we were talking to them about it, and we couldn't really find a way to fit this into the story because our narrative was really about Mike and Steve and not about Randy. But Randy has never, and you heard in the interview that I forgot I had done with, with Randy <laughs> years ago, never mentions Magic or Miracle in any of his tellings of Project Alpha. Which, which, which I just read as... He was really hoping it would be the James Randy show. It turned into a lot of projects kind of do that. There we go. Right there. Because that was something that was told to us by Banachek and Mike that it was initially the Randy show. It was the Randy travels the world and finds some things for which he absolutely cannot explain, like the ability to walk across Hot coals, he, right, he, which which is a real phenomenon based on thermal lag, but it was poorly understood at the time. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and reveals other things like psychic surgery. But that's not and I really, really wish that the George Schlatter Productions would put this on on, on YouTube or something somewhere. The bulk of that special is this back and forth between Randy and Geller and they've shot a lot of stuff of Geller doing certain stuff. And the, 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 the beginning of the episode is the narrator reading off all these fanciful things. But first the psychic battle of the century. I think we even use that clip in the show and it goes right into Geller says he's real. Randy says he's not. And they go back and forth and it's Geller talking and it's Randy talking. And from everything that we have heard from at least Mike and Steve, Randy was very upset that Geller essentially hijacked his opportunity. This, and he this, made he it was all this close. about himself. And I wonder if we don't know what has gone on in the process of creating this, but if maybe much like George Schlatter productions way back in the early eighties, a story about something else that involved getting comment from Geller all of a sudden found itself morphing by some unseen hand, not unlike a spoon bending to the will of the person holding it. Uh, Justin, can I share with you a totally unrelated recommendation? Uh, there's an Idris Elba starred vehicle on Apple TV plus that me and the family are enjoying. It's called hijack. Yes. I mean, I, we don't know, but based on what Ben Harris said, this was supposed to be and how upset it feels like he is for essentially being pinned as the poster boy for, for the fact that all magic and skepticism now loves Yuri Geller. It would not shock me if history has repeated itself. I mean, that special was in 1983. So if 40 years 40 years on the exact same phenomenon happened yet again. And you know what? The, that, the paper of record a little bit of a preview here. We're going to do an uh, interview with the authors of the upcoming book. Uh, I guess it's out now. Nobody's fool. And one of the chapters is dedicated to the idea of how rarely we check to see what somebody's past track record is when we, accept their claims. And so very often it's not the first time 
that if when when you get deceived, you go back and you're like, oh yeah, no, definitely arrested this time, that time, that time, the other time. This was a lawsuit and so on. Um, if if past performance is any indicator of future results, uh, uh, I, I guess the history record speaks for itself. Anything else on this? I mean, I, I think the, the other element of all, of all this is that me and you both know how this process works with with Geller. That any kind of attention, you becomes know, becomes good attention for him. Because, yeah, I mean, he's he is the reason why him and Randy had such an epic feud for as long as they did is because both of them were not just good but expert at making any motion from the other one into a meal that benefited them. Well then let me throw this out there. Um, I am personally Brian Brushwood of the opinion that you're hundred percent correct. And part of me, the human Brian Brushwood is a little bit embarrassed to even being drawn into the discussion about this because Geller benefits. But what if like the relationship between him and Randy, we were able to benefit. For example, what if everybody listening made a mm. habit of encouraging people <laughs> to listen to episode one of season three of World's Greatest Con? Yeah, wherein we we, we talk very specifically about Geller's effect, not only on parapsychology, but academics in general. And then we tell a very small story about only one example of $4 million adjusted for inflation being lost. Uh so yeah, so 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 there we go. Uh, that is our thoughts. I know a lot of people have reached out to us uh, about it, and it felt right to have some kind of comment here, especially now that we've got more information that has come out about the sourcing on the article. All right, so enough about the New York Times article. The important thing is that we got to sit down with a name that is as synonymous to skepticism, at least in my upbringing, as James Randi himself, Michael Shermer, was gracious enough to stop by the studio and we got a, a, a long interview with him. We did. Uh, he was incredibly gracious with his time and even more gracious to listen to our entire season. Uh, uh, as it turns out, that man bicycles a lot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and as somebody who, who's done a triathlon or three, I could agree. You want something in your ears at all times. Absolutely. And we were honored that it was us. And so what follows is a conversation with Michael Shermer, not only about season three, but also about skepticism and the skeptic community and a little bit about James Randi as well. And again, if you have a friend who you hear talking about that New York Times article, please just uh, do us a solid. Make them listen. Season three. World's greatest con. And that's why I need your money right now. Man, how do we begin? We're here with Justin Robert Young, mm -hmm. Michael Shermer. Mm -hmm. This is a moment I never thought I would experience. <laughs> this is precious and powerful to me. I don't know which one of us should be asking questions of whom. <laughs> well, we could just, uh, you know, have the conversation ricochet around the table and see what comes up. I would ask you guys, you know, I'm very interested in uh, the psychology of belief, why people believe weird things is my first book, right? So why people believe anything. And then in cognitive psychology circles, there's this sort of division uh, between how gullible and susceptible people are to cons and scams and so on. We're just 
inherently irrational, the, the whole Danny Kahneman, Amos Tversky stuff about, you know, cognitive biases, confirmation system biases, one, system, system two. one, system two, and that we're just sort of hopelessly irrational. And look at, here's a hundred different, you know, cognitive biases. You can look up on Wikipedia. It's like, how does anybody even get out of bed and go to work? You know, we're so irrational. But then there's other cognitive psychologists that say, no, no, no. Actually, if it's presented in the proper way, people are actually pretty rational most of the time, right? So it's not clear which is the correct answer to this, you know? So I'll, I'll just set it up and just ask you guys well, this. Well, I, I, uh, uh, I'll go first. Um, yeah. uh, I think we're talking about heuristics. Um, and heuristics are... Uh, give it a bad rap because heuristics are what cause us to ascribe negative things to situations and people uh, just kind of automatically at a gut level. But also they're probably uh, uh, various tribes uh, 10,000 years ago who had a heuristic of the other equals bad were more likely to survive yes. than the other equals invite them in. Right. Yeah, I think that... You know, even the framing of a question like that is really a slave to narratives. We have this narrative that by purging the irrationalities, we will become more rational and live uh, a better life. And that is certainly a goal to have to confront elements of your existence for which you can make better. But I do think on some level it is, if, if anything, almost harmful when we look at our own behavior and say, if I have a flaw, if I have, I mean, there's a reason why we were hanging out earlier and Brian was doing magic tricks for you. It doesn't make you stupid that you didn't know right. how the magic trick was going right. to be, was right. going to be done. It right. made you human that you were going to focus on a certain thing. And magic is the art, uh, much in the same way the cons are of exploiting those holes. So the reason why we, we have world's greatest con and, and the, the, the central line. thesis is cons don't fool us because we're stupid. They fool us because we're human and, right. and to assign Morality and virtue and uh, intelligence uh, be, being broken if you are not to it, I think only cements us in this idea that we're not just flawed machines right. that, like any machine, can be hacked. That's where I'm leaning now on that debate. I think, like you showed me the, the you know, pick a book off the shelf here, flip to any page. The book looks exactly like the books that I recognize. Why would I think this is a artificially constructed book where every page has these certain words and you're going to get them? I wouldn't think that because normally that's not the way the world works, right? So, like, we, I did a series of experiments for uh, Dateline NBC with Chris Hansen, which we replicated famous psych experiments like Milgram's shock experiments. And, but we did the smoke in the room. So this is at NBC Studios. These, the, the subjects are just people trying out for this uh, reality show called What a Pain. And um, <laughs> so they're filling out their forms. And, uh, uh, and we start pumping theater smoke into the room, right? So the, everybody there is a shill working for us except for the one guy that's our subject, right? It doesn't so, even smell like actual fire No, no, smoke. no. But, yeah. you know, and you see him, he's like, and then he looks at, you know, um, okay. And then he goes back, you know, to... Yeah. And meanwhile, and, everybody else is acting yeah, like just, nothing's weird. Right. But if you think, then everybody laughs, you know, these people are so stupid that they fall for this. Well, normally, if you were in a room and there was smoke pouring in it, you guys wouldn't just sit there. And if you were just sitting there, because we're in a studio, I think this has got to be theater smoker. These are magicians. I know they're, they're they're hacking me here or something. But but normally, so we so social proof, right? You turn to other people and think, well, that's I can trust them for the most part. You know, pull the audience. It works pretty well for most things, right? And who has time to fact check everything that happens? 
Right. And, and more importantly, who could function as a human in society if you're going to question like, is that light really red or is it green? You know, <laughs> right, it's right, like at some right. point you have to you have to take most points at face value. Right. Well, you, yeah, you or else we would just be constantly questioning everything at all times. We're all making assumptions. We're making right. assumptions about how we comb our hair or how we dress or where we are or the fact that you're really in Austin, Texas and you're not on <laughs> Mars right now. Like there's a, a, a lot of stuff that we just have to build. And that's why it's like when we say narratives, it, it's I think it's it's necessary. It's it's part of our processing so we can understand where we are. Now there are ways in which we do it. There's ways in yeah. which we gather and predictably put together what we assume to be our reality. And that's where I think for, for you know, what to Brian's point, whenever you are looking at a thing that could only in your mind take tremendous effort, like that person who's sitting there and is like thinking about, uh, I, should I freak out? Should I not freak out? Everybody else is calm. In his mind, probably subconsciously, there's a thought of, well, I mean, I'm not on a television set with a bunch of actors right. and this is canola right. oil and Michael right. Shermer is behind the scenes. Right. Like That's right. certainly not the case. I guess right. this is just a thing that happens and maybe, you know, Dracula's farting and like that's, that's although, why I should keep filling now, out. I want to live my life as though Michael Shermer is always behind <laughs> the scenes of everything. Well, it's like that Darren Brown special, The Push. You know, like how many steps you have to go through to get somebody to walk up to somebody sitting on a wall on a high rise and shove them off. And, and it took a lot, right? So it's not like people are so stupid they'll just do whatever you tell them. Go push that guy off the bridge. Okay, I will. They don't do that. Well, you uh, have to have like a hundred steps to get him Darren, to that Darren, point. Darren, Darren is a special case. He, but, but he's so brilliant because wait the minute, art. What do, you, the, what do you mean? You're not telling me some of this was not what it looked uh, like. Regard, regardless of how the method's done, okay. the brilliance of Darren Brown is that he makes what we were just talking about as the thing that you would definitely not think his art. So he, in his specials, and he's done this repeatedly and in his live shows, talks about all the little things that is, are going to have to happen to make this extraordinarily thing, extraordinary thing possible. Mm. Is that exactly how it's done? Probably. Who knows? That's I the see, magic I of see, Darren Brown. So, uh, uh, so maybe that's misdirection? Michael, here's a totally unrelated, totally separate story. <laughs> in no way connected. <laughs> You are familiar <laughs> okay. with something called the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, right? Yeah. Uh, how yeah. do you describe that? Yes. Oh, well, you just shoot at a barn, and then you walk up and draw the bullseye around your shots. That's a good way to do it. Uh, <laughs> magicians have something called a dual reality, where a pretty good trick happens to somebody on stage, but an amazing trick is perceived by the audience. I see. <laughs> Darren Brown is a very good magician. And it seems to me, and this is my favorite thing, this is why I intentionally don't find out how many things are done, because if I don't know how it's done, I feel ethically free to suspect how I would mm, do it. Mm. New story, here's how I might do something like that. I might, um, uh, I might get a result, and then after the fact, manufacture a narrative that acts that. as though that was the intended result. <laughs> That's really funny. And we see this not only on magic shows, but also uh, hypothetically, I don't know, which is why I get to speculate uh, on on Bryce's favorite show uh, uh, from Nathan for you. Uh, what was that show? The rehearsal. The rehearsal. The rehearsal. The rehearsal. Right? <laughs> Whatever. Brian was not fooled. I was not fooled. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the point is, is uh, there's... The in-the-moment narrative 
And then there's how you present the narrative. And I think Darren Brown was one of the greatest, is one of the greatest masters to ever perfect that art, to make both parties satisfied because the people were genuinely fooled in the moment, but the people at home got an even better story. Mm. End press release. <laughs> you mean so when they when they make the actual documentary and they reconstruct how they did all this, that could be somewhat artificial in the same way that scientists run experiments. They run like nine different experiments and three of them are significant. The others just go in the file drawer and then they write up the paper. Here was my methods. I did this and this and this and we found this and this and this. And they don't mention all the messiness, yeah. and we tried this, we tried that, nothing worked, spent years doing this, and we finally got this. That's all you read about. Well, and, and, and I believe that that bias exists in all of our lives at all levels. For example, I'm 48 years old now, doing okay as an independent content creator, and people ask me, how did you do it? And what I'm tempted to do, because of where I am, is draw a thread yes. back to performing on a street corner and figure <laughs> right. out what are all the right things I do. So so with a straight face and actually believing it, I might want to say, well, you've got to do this and that and think about this or whatever. But truthfully, I I cannot remember all of the failed attempts or or and I cannot figure out how many of those things were just dumb luck or coincidence mm-hmm. or, or what have you. Uh, only, you know, if you're giving a magic show, maybe you do a little bit more of that on purpose. It's all like that. It's the hindsight bias. I call it the autobiography bias. You know, the unauthorized autobiography. Here's how I did it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> when in fact, you know, like in my case, oh, so you go to college and then you don't get into grad school. So you get a job at a bike magazine and you become a bike racer and then you teach at night and then you do this and then you start a magazine and here you are. It's like, what? Like 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 some 16 year old who is like, oh, my God, Michael Shermer, I want to be just like Michael Shermer. I guess the first thing I have to do is be very good at riding bikes. It's like <laughs> that will not lead no, you to being no, Michael Shermer. No, no, no. But, yeah. but that, that goes back to to the stories that we tell of, of ourselves and that we demand from the rest of the world. Like the reason why Darren Brown is so successful is because he put especially for his era of magic, more artistry and story in both his live shows and his television specials than really anything else that was in the field. His, Nobody his else was putting on, uh, that kind of narrative into it. Was it called Miracle, where he kind of debunks the uh, faith healers by being a faith healer himself on stage. Yeah. Now, some of this, uh, you know, standard mentalism, some stuff, it looked like he was actually doing hypnosis, where the person, he tells the person, you won't be able to, under hypnosis, you won't be able to read this headline, right? Everybody can see what the headline is. And then the guy's reading, and then all of a sudden he can't read it anymore. Now, I assume that guy's not a plant. Is he actually able to read it and he's going along with it? Or is it like the old hypnosis trick where, you know, after I wake you up, you will not be able to say the number seven and then they wake him up, count to 10, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, nine, ten, and they can't seem to say it. I can't tell if they're going along with it. As best I understand it, and uh, my, my experience is less academic and more watching a friend of mine become a stage hypnotist for 20 years. Um, as best I can understand, there is a spectrum of people who are able to be fully in state uh, at any time. Absorption, that's uh, called. Yes, and, and some of them who are very good at, it, uh, at doing it on cue go to Hollywood and become famous actors, mm. and they're not faking when they cry, right? And as a result, we watching the movie lose ourselves in that moment and actually cry or whatever. There are some people who are 
better able to do that than others. Uh, stage hypnosis, and th- there's therapeutic hypnosis, which, you know, that's where you get into double blind trials of whether or not it's more effective for stopping smoking or eating less or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, setting all of that aside, the moment of theatrical hypnosis, it does seem like there's a giant, let's say you have 2,000 people in the audience. That's a good da- data set, right? Mm. From all types. You have a statistically significant number of people who are able to self-select for number one, wanting to play along. And some number of those are going to be the type of people who are somebody who can instantly put themselves in any state that they're given. And then over the course of 45 minutes, they are trained, makes it seem like they're a puppy dog, which of course they're not, they're humans, but, 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 but they are, they are accustomed to the game. And then they're said, and now this happened or whatever. And, uh, one of my friends was one of those subjects where he won a million dollars, air quotes. And afterwards, uh, uh, people would ask him, hey, man, where's that check? And he actually reached for his pocket. Really? And then and it was like, oh, and and to hear him describe it, this is my interpretation, but it sounded an awful lot like, have you ever had a dream and you know it was a dream, but you forgot that you knew it was a dream. And later in the day, something happens. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, screw that guy. Oh, no, wait, no, that was a dream. Like, that's right. where you seem to end up as best I can tell. Yeah. I think that's probably right. There's this thing called absorption where there's an absorption scale. You take this little test. Like, do you ever find yourself staring at the, the ocean and just you're kind of mesmerized and minutes go by? You know, some people know. Some people, yeah, totally, right? So if you score pretty high on this, these people are more likely to hear voices or sense presence. They have sleep paralysis or hypnopompic hallucinations. They, but more the, the kind of sense presence of somebody else in the room. With me, you know, this is a phenomenon. It's not huge, but people high in absorption are more likely to have those kind of imaginary things that happen. And so I do. So you mentioned you have a thousand people in the audience. It's a good data set. Do you mean by that that the hypnotist does a bunch of stuff before the show starts or we see the TV show starts filming in which they have people raise their hand and then lower your hand and they end up with like 100 and then down to 10. And these are the five people I'm bringing up on stage. That, well, yeah, that, this, yeah, this is another great moment where I yeah. get to speculate because I don't okay. know. Here's how I would do it. Okay. <laughs> I would do all of those pre-selection activities. I would do things like tell people, clasp your hands together. The harder you try to pull apart your hands, the more stuck together they become. And I would have spotters telling me who's doing what or whatever. And then I might make a moment of you, 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 and then get them up, not entirely on stage, Mm. but maybe get 50 of them and do more filtering activities. And then finally say, okay, you 20 stand here. Then I would go up and I would say from stage, I need volunteers, about 20 of them. Please come up. And then that's all the home audience would see. Right. That's if I was doing this. Right. I cannot speak for anybody else. <laughs> there is a, uh, the nice. intro of our second season of World's Greatest Con where Brian does an entire breakdown of a stage hypnotist act. And specifically, like for a television show, that that is a great element of pre-work. But if you're just at a college and this is just all going to be packed into a 90-minute uh, thing where you you come on at a certain time, you got to leave at a certain time, it's remarkable how much our human desire to fit in, 
to be recognized, to not be uncomfortable, mm. uh, and and the little ways that we will push our own boundaries, or maybe even secretly fulfill a desire to be the center of attention, uh, will allow you to be theatrically put into a position where it looks very credibly to the audience that you are dancing like Britney Spears because you are fully under hypnosis. Right, right. So I got a funny story for you. So uh, I, one of my um, kids. Parent, friend's parents is over visiting and he's a kind of a skinny guy and and uh so he sees i have a chess set he goes oh you play chess i go yeah a little bit you know he goes oh you know i used to play the you know, grandmasters and stuff i'm like oh well you know you don't want to play me i could i can't even beat level one on my computer right and then you know and then he, i got a tennis racket oh you play tennis yeah yeah a little bit you know just for fun well i play with jimmy connors he and i hit all the time this is in santa barbara i'm like okay that's two that are it's a bit of a stretch all right, maybe. And then, you know, we talked about I'm a cyclist, right? So, you know, you know Lance Armstrong. Yeah, I know Lance Armstrong, the doping. He's, oh, I used to be a big doper. You know, when I was in special forces, <laughs> I was just totally ripped. I was taking testosterone and steroids, the whole thing. I mean, we were down there, you know, eliminating dictators and stuff with the special forces. Like, you got a picture. The guy standing sitting across from me looks like Pee Wee Herman, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. And at this point, I'm like, you know, at, at three strikes and you're out. Yeah. Right. And so, that man, the Pope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so how many cues do you need before somebody's skepticism kicks in? Well, th- there's a bit of a filtering mechanism. Like I, on purpose, once I quit my day job, started touring as a magician, uh, started telling stories online, started, you know, doing a little bit of TV here or there. You know, I've collected stories that have informed business decisions. Like it's not entirely an accident that I bought a crazy person compound, right? Because I'm attracted (laughs) to crazy people. But if I were to just out of nowhere say, Oh yeah, no, I'm a nationally famous touring uh, tonight show performing uh, guy who bought a crazy nudist cult compound. That was where the satanic panic happened. Like if I, if I gave you all of that at once, uh, that would be like, you're an asshole and you're making up all of this. However, in pieces, like these are trophies on the shelf that I've collected over time. And and I know that I have learned to parcel them out even when they're true. Uh, and instead, uh, uh, but it sounds like this guy, you got the impression that the guy was making up everything whole cloth. Yeah, but see, uh, yeah, I can't fact check any of that. I wouldn't even know who call in the special forces. Is this guy on your, t- you know, whatever? I'm not, you know, he's not interviewing for a job or something like that. But so we, you just kind of have to default to trust for most of the time because most people don't make up stories about how they were in special forces or whatever. <laughs> and I'll tell you another funny story. There's a, this has to do with cycling. There was a guy, uh, like a 45 year old cyclist, and he's on Strava, which is this app where you oh, record yeah. all your you rides notes. and everybody sees what everybody else is doing. You can see the average speed and which climb and so on. Anyway, this guy was a total. Uh, imposter con man so on him and he said he told people he was you know the ceo of a major corporation in europe he was a pro racer in his 20s he was in special forces he did all these things and what but nobody checked and he carried this on for years until finally he posted a, a, a stage on strava where he was like faster than the fastest tour de france rider did that climb and somebody went that guy did not do that. Uh, that I can fact check because I know that client, right? Yes. And that's what brought him down. Because otherwise, who, how would you fact check stuff like that? Well, and also it's what is that person's worth to you? 
you know, we are always constantly looking around and, and uh, assessing our own status and assessing uh, who can help us, who we like, who we don't like. Sometimes we have friends that are, you know, kind of rakes or they might make things up uh, uh, every every now and again. But but right. we like them. We enjoy right. their we enjoy right. their company. We don't want to embarrass them. Uh, sometimes there are people that we just absolutely loathe and despise and wish would leave the planet immediately. <laughs> that we kind of have to begrudgingly concede our honest or at least have a code for which they they follow these things are are messy so it doesn't surprise me that somebody would be able to be a complete fabulous as long as with other elements of their social status they are Mm. fitting into uh uh, the Mm. world and people might think okay well let's say 50 percent of what he's saying is total horse poop like Mm. uh maybe the other 50 can help me maybe i can i can i can get ahead in life well and and that's an interesting question because i know for sure until you fraudulently list a bike uh run (laughs) ostracized forever uh no i i know for sure that there are friends that i invite to parties that i don't believe half of what they say but i know it'll be a better party because they're there and and i know that there are people who invite me to parties who probably don't believe half the stuff i say uh, because it'll be a better party for it um uh, which i guess brings us back to uh storytelling and uh, uh you have a unique talent michael i think of navigating uh when i first got into skepticism it was all about facts uh, because in a pre-internet era, era when it was difficult to do fact checking, some wild claims would be made and there was no way to push back on them. And then now we're able to, you know, somebody can post a YouTube video saying I'm trying to do this thing. Looks an awful lot like total BS or whatever. Uh, but but you, among most skeptics, uh, have surprised me with you seem warm to the idea that story matters and that there's storytelling aspects and archetypes that we're drawn to for, for various reasons. Uh, uh, Maybe I'm misreading it, but, but does that number one ring true? And would you like to elaborate on that at all? (laughs) Well, I, uh, I'm a writer, so you have to tell a story or else you're just writing a textbook, right? And I'm not a textbook writer. So yeah. And my favorite authors are also good storytellers, you know, Richard Dawkins and Stephen Jay Gould and Stephen Pinker, you know, science writers that also can write a beautiful narrative arc for each chapter, for the whole book, you know, it's outlined and so on. And uh, to me, that makes all the difference in the world. I think this is my explanation for the Jordan Peterson phenomenon is that he's not just a good storyteller, uh, the first time I saw him on stage, it was just at some conference and before he was really famous. And, you know, like each of the previous speakers was kind of giving their normal talk with the PowerPoint slides, just, you know, a real snoozer. And he just gets up there and says, well, I was thinking about, you know, I've been thinking all day about what you guys wanted to talk about today. And, you know, I was reading Nietzsche this morning and he, you know, and I just had this idea and I tied it to Young, you know, this question that you brought. And everybody's like, oh, my God, what is he talking about? And then, you know, he's on this story, right? And I thought, that guy's good, right? He, he, he was fully present in the moment. And right. he talked about everybody's favorite subject themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, you know, there's, there's a great anecdote that uh, came out right when Boris Johnson became prime minister of the mm. United Kingdom. And this guy was telling the story about how the first time that he uh, saw Boris Johnson speak, 
uh, it was at some staid, you know, conservative uh, uh, event in, in London. And the people there, as you might imagine, are very, very rigid <laughs> about their timing and hoping everybody's there. And Boris Johnson's the headliner, but he's not there. And so they're starting to panic. They're calling him and they can't get in touch with him. And, and then uh, they're asking other people, hey, if he doesn't show up, can you go last? And blah, blah, blah. Then all of a sudden, about five minutes before he's supposed to go on, Boris Johnson comes Busting in, he's like half sweating. He's he's got uh, you know, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's barely put together, and he's like like oh, I, it turns out like uh, my speech got left. I came here as as fast as I can. I'll just go up there and wing. Uh, uh, he's gonna wing it, so he does. And he kills, just absolutely slays. He brings and, and admits up uh, on stage, you know, I just got here. I don't have my speech with me. But, you know, uh, rub the forehead, goes off and, and absolutely uh, murders the crowd. Everybody loves him. And the end of that column is the second time that I saw Boris Johnson speak. <laughs> right. He was late. He showed up yeah, five right, minutes right. and it was the exact same speech. Carefully planned uh, r- randomness. <laughs> but, but when you think about it, it's like, what makes that special? Mm. Part of it, of course, from the perspective of the speaker is that you seem like you are a high wire person. You right. read into who his character is, who he is, who he right. isn't in a world of state people. He is a bit of a rebel, but also it's story. Immediately, like like, those, and these are the most powerful characters, the most powerful mythos, the most powerful archetypes are people that you know immediately where they're coming from and what they're doing, and what? and that's that's something that I think is extraordinarily powerful, especially in the world of cons, where you need to put a lot of story in yes. a little bit yes. of, of of time. But uh, well, I, I I don't like where this positions me because uh, uh, we talk about the asymmetry of the con man being able to prepare for a moment long in advance. But uh, I, I know you do a lot of talks and hopefully this doesn't make me look like a con man. But every time <laughs> I give a co- talk, I intentionally put tedious citation slides for the purpose of me to say, oh, we don't have time for this dumb garbage, just so <laughs> I do? can have that moment That's of, really of making everybody feel appreciated. I don't know if that makes me a bad person or <laughs> That's not. That's really funny. Well, since you guys are magicians, I'll tell you this. Uh, when I saw David Copperfield live for the first time, Civic Auditorium in Pasadena, late 90s, I think it was. So he took a group of skeptics there and, and for the afternoon show. And it was great. Of course, he did all his usual stuff. But he had this one thing. He's like, okay, I'm going to randomly picks somebody from the audience. He throws the ball out or whatever he did to make it seem random. And he ends up with this cute kid that's like 12 years old. And he's got the card in the envelope on the wall. Uh, you know, okay, now you have to keep an eye on this. And he gives him these little plastic binoculars. Don't take your eyes off that card, right? And then he does whatever he does, right? Anyway, so then later for the evening show, well, some of the other people couldn't make it. So I said, all right, I'll take you guys to the evening show. I don't mind seeing it a second time. So again, random person from the audience. Same kid. I'm like, oh, even that was planned. And it looks so random. And it, why would it matter? Well, because he's cute and he, I don't know. Well, and, and there is kind of a just so-ness. Um, uh, I, I, I don't want to get into the business of deconstructing Copperfield's act in particular, but I do know that sometimes in his show, something would happen organically. And after the show, it was agreed by everybody that that was the best moment oh, ever. I see. And then it so we should always replicate happened that. again. <laughs> That's funny, because I, I wanted to ask you about cults and cons. Uh, you know, to what extent do these cult leaders or con men 
you know, kind of by trial and error, end up at a really effective method to get people to join or give their money or whatever. And we don't see the back end. Like this guy tried 10,000 different things to get somebody to give them their money. And this is the one that worked. And now we see, oh, that's the con, but we don't see the the back end. I, uh, we, we not talked about this on, on air, but uh, I suspect that more rather than less con men uh, or cult leaders really begin believing what they're doing. Right. But, but at some point the stakes get high enough that they have to figure out how to keep on creating miracles. And uh, you see this in marketing with uh, what I've heard called a guru itis of like, uh, no, whatever I say is the best way to market or whatever. Um, uh, you see this in branding, you see this in uh, uh, performances. Um, uh, but but I believe very few people begin with malintent in mind. Mm-hmm. I think they take shortcuts, but then we are uncomfortable with the historical record and we have to reconcile why I didn't do that because I was scared or lazy mm-hmm. and I wanted to pinch off this bit from so-and-so. So I'm now going to decide that that guy was always evil and I'm the first one to finally reveal whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Does that land? Yeah, I... I, I, I Personally, I would like to put con men and cult leaders in kind of two separate buckets, because I think that like there's an element of that for cult leaders, for sure. If you look at the history of cults, very often it starts out as something that is almost like, you know, even Scientology began as a rejection of the rigid structure of, of psychiatry. It's like, here's a open source way for everyone to take care of themselves. Oh, wait, is there no money in open source ways? Here's a new, highly rigid structure that is the real way. Whereas con men in in the way that I think it's probably most commonly referred to are basically people who are like, oh, I would like money. Uh, Well, I can punch this person and take it, uh, but that would make my hand hurt. How do I do it without making my hand hurt? And that's where you get short changes and And also faster. Yeah, exactly. It's faster and it's cleaner and you can get away with it. And you can probably be farther enough uh, away by the time that somebody realizes that they got got. Because part of what cons take advantage of uh, are you thinking that you're getting ahead in some way? And so you are mm. co-opting them into something dirty that mm. they then just want the shame to go away. And so if they had to pay whatever amount that they just got finessed for, that is what it is. And it's the reason why on our show, we never want to lionize the con man. That, that it's not something that I think we have a reflexive uh, reaction to movies and television shows about con men where everything is this Rube Goldberg, uh, you know, Ocean's Eleven will you cough and then I'll do a backflip and then somebody, yeah. the waiter will, yeah. you know, slip the uh, the thing and the other thing. Uh, very often cons are are pretty rudimentary. You know, they're, they're mm. uh, uh, clever. They are something that exploits an element of our humanity, but they're not these grand, uh, brilliant plans. And so we wind up focusing more on the marks uh, than we do on on the con men specifically because that's where we think the but, drama but really is. But the cons is. know what works for the marks 
by how trial and error they, they, throughout throughout history sure they, well, they have a they have an intuitive guess as to what's going to work but remember we're only counting the successes we're not telling stories about right. the so, failures in other words, if, I, if I asked for the money at week three uh, oh that didn't work I'll wait till week five after I do these other things then I'll get the money and he tries it a hundred times week five is the time to ask for the money correct like like our, again our core thesis is the con man isn't smart the mark is not stupid mm, they're yes. two humans uh, Playing like a forever chess game. That's good. Uh, and so uh, 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 we we only know the stories of the cons that worked, and we have yet to find out what is a con right now. You know, for example, let's say we were doing this series two years before Bernie Madoff got figured out. Mm. He would not be on our list to even talk about. Right. It's only after the hindsight bias that we get to reveal. Well, and also, it's like the times that don't work are are stupid, right? Like like uh, in our our first episode, the first thing that you hear out of Brian's mouth is him getting scared scammed in a well, for for fake speakers that White we were told scam, yeah right. he, he was told were amazing and what, they were what was, what was this oh I, 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 the the story is basically 21 year old brian uh, uh oh let me get these flies there we go uh the story is basically a 20-year-old Brian is at a Home Depot. A couple guys hop out of a white van saying that they had studio monitors. They were supposed to only have four that went to this strip club. They had two extras. Look at this magazine. Same picture, same thing. Normally, they're $1,200, but, uh, you know, I'll let them go for 300 And meanwhile, I'm thinking, oh, oh, you're trying to scam a scammer. I know these are stolen. I would like to give you $300. But because I was bought, like, what am I going to do when I find out that they're garbage speakers? Is Am I going to call the cops? Am I going to call the Better Business Bureau and <laughs> right. say, I was trying to buy good quality stolen speakers? Uh, that, that trap tends to close off that loop. Mm. But think of the ones that don't work. It's somebody right. saying, hey, I got speakers. And you go, nah. <laughs> that's right. it. Right? right. Like, and, right. and so it's low test. It's, it's yes. low risk. Yes. You can, right. you can throw that bait out as many times as you want. It doesn't feel illegal uh, uh, in, in that moment. And, you know, eventually you get a, a Brian who's uh, uh, 21 and really, really into speakers. <laughs> uh, so one of the most extraordinary parts about doing this season is the fact that 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 you, somebody who I have followed and respected for decades, uh, gave it your full attention. Thank goodness you drive very long bicycle rides. <laughs> uh, listen to the whole thing in one day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you burned through everything. What was that experience like for you? How much baggage did you come into Project Alpha with? With and how much of that was a surprise to you? Well, most of it was a surprise in the details, but I had the same just kind of meme story of, you know, Randy hired these two kids and sent them in because he wanted to fool the scientists because that was Randy's thing. You know, scientists are not trained to have to, to, to know what uh, magicians can see. So you got to have a magician on your team when you're testing the paranormal. Right. That was always his thing. Now, I think that was probably a hindsight bias himself. Like, but, and, and also practice. not untrue. I mean, he yeah, was that's right. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. But, you know, I always thought, well, so um, the the two boys uh, were just sent in. I didn't know that they were going to go in anyway. And then Randy came on board later. You know, it was obviously a team effort. And uh, so, yeah, all the details of that were astonishing, especially the on the fly, you know, just real time adjustments that the boys had to make to figure out how are we going to do this. And I always thought, well, they just call Randy. You know, we're back at the hotel. This is what they're going to do tomorrow. What do we do? And 
no, that wasn't what happened, as I discovered. Yeah. Well, and, In fact, and, it was the other way around. They were calling Randy and telling them to report they what, what they did. And then Randy would write a letter saying, hey, I don't know what you guys are doing, <laughs> but uh, if anybody's uh, right. uh, doing a thing with a bell jar, then you should really cover the bottom because somebody might be blowing. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I'm trying to tee up a question. Anyway. Uh, any other thoughts about the experience of hearing the full story? Because we were very nervous going into this because we knew that there had existed for 40 years an official narrative. We were talking to first sources. Uh, uh, we are not the founder and editor-in-chief of Skeptic Magazine. <laughs> so we did not know well, exactly I, I what lines we to, were crossing. We should write this up for, for uh, as an article in Skeptic because this is part of classic history of skepticism, you know, because most of what we get, uh, this is a big problem in science too, uh, you know, is that we're not actually getting the full story and the full story is always way more interesting. You know, it just gets filtered down to this really simple story, uh, like the eclipse experiments that uh, tested Einstein's theory of relativity that Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington did. The st standard story you get in the textbook is that uh, in 1919, there's a solar eclipse. Einstein had predicted that light would bend around a large gravitational uh, mass like the sun and gravity is a distortion of that kind of well of space-time and it's bending it's not being pulled by some force right so how would you test that well you have to have an eclipse because the starlight behind the sun you can't see during the day because the sun's on right? but an eclipse would it so he figured this out so he sends the team out there they photograph it and the, you know the measurements the starlight from the back stars passing past the sun or bent exactly the way Einstein predicted, right? And that's not at all what happened. <laughs> In fact, there were actually two teams that were sent out. One team, it was cloudy and they just got next to no data. And the other team, the data was kind of in between what Newton predicted versus what Einstein predicted. And then they had to do some more measurements and it turned out Einstein was right and Newton was not not as right. And, and so, but the whole story takes like a full chapter in a history of science book, whereas in textbooks you get like the the, the two paragraph description. Well, and, this and, happens everywhere, right? What's the real story? It's always more interesting. Well, and, and, and also messy. more <laughs> tedious, right? Uh, tedious, messy. It's not as clean. You know, the famous, world famous, amazing Randy yeah. does this thing, and then he's got a series of hits. You know, the pop off expose. He's on the Tonight Show, and he does this and this and this. You know, from escape artist to this. And it's just, it's a great narrative. It's a story, right? It's the story we want. I also wonder as we move through our internet world where uh, the one thing that has changed forever is scarcity. Like like you mentioned a textbook, that that story is you only get X amount in the textbook. And that has yes, just as much right. to do about the fact that the textbook can only be so many pages because that's what the budget is right. uh, uh, as it is for any other reason. Now in our world of infinite audio and, and text that we, and video that we have on the internet effectively, you know, forever. I wonder if nuance and our ability to find things easier and, and uh, put them together with like AI is something that we will have more of that, that, that hopefully, at least for me, because I, I agree with you that very rarely, especially when we're talking about big figures that people have a lot of esteem for, the reality of their lives are far more fascinating than mm -hmm. the myths. The myths are there to serve a purpose. The, the, the actual reality is something that I think we can actually see ourselves in, which is more, more important. I think some of that too is, you know, Randy was a big personality 
entertaining, fun, interesting, and a great storyteller. And there aren't many like that. Bill Nye's like that. I know Bill pretty well. Neil deGrasse Tyson's a good friend. He's like that. So when I meet scientists going, you know, how come Bill Nye gets all that TV? Neil deGrasse Tyson gets his own show. It's like they say it like, well, you know, it was random or how come I don't get the show? Well, have you tried going on television and try to be funny? You can't do it. You're going to be like the people on American Idol. I can sing. No, actually, you can't. Yeah. Right? It, it is a tournament. It's a crucible. It's it's a it's a it's a grueling, awful meat grinder of a factory where only the simplest and plainest and most direct narratives seem to emerge and on the other end. Error, Bill Nye was a comedian, stand-up comedian in Seattle before he was Bill Nye the Science Guy. And then after that, he was the weatherman. Yeah. And then he's introducing humor into the weather report. And then he, you know, then he does this and this and this and then Bill Nye, the science guy. So you don't see the back end. Right. And Neil tells the story of, you know, the first time he was asked to be on one of those late night shows and he rehearsed and practiced. He says, I got a, I got six minutes and this is what I want to say. And I'm going to throw these lines in. I'm going to do this. So it was well rehearsed. And that, but the way he does it, because he's so entertaining, he's bigger than live character. It comes off as totally spontaneous. I was once on uh, Bill Maher's. Politically Incorrect, the previous show. Uh, so he had four guests, so it was two and two. And I was sitting next to Kevin Nealon from Saturday Night Live. Oh, sure. And he was really funny. I mean, he was just coming up with stuff like this. I thought, God damn, I wish I was funny. I'm just not a funny guy. And then on the first commercial break, he pulls out this little index card. And I look and he's over, got, he's, he's got the lines. Yep. I'm like, oh, dang. <laughs> I mean, that that's straight up magic. It's like, it, it's like, uh, uh, if you don't question first principles now, of course we can't live our whole lives questioning first principles on everything, but, but yeah. Uh, so I do have one question. I, I kind of want to go to skeptic confession here. Uh, your newest book is about conspiracies, right? There is one, I'm a pretty good skeptic about most things, but but when I hear a we have an amazing opportunity. I'm really glad you're getting along. Do you take American Express? But but uh, whenever I see a narrative presented that is just so, that is perfectly tidy, that is just right, I always ask myself: If I were going to just shoot straight for that thing, is there a shorter path? And and I'm thinking. Mm. Uh, 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 much to my great chagrin, we recently, uh, 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 Jeff put together an amazing article that's on the modern road right now where we found out that Frank Abagnale's incredible story of catch me if you can, like, you know, if you want to be famous for a, being a liar who lied his way around the world, why would you bother to lie your way around the world? Why not just skip to the part where you lie about having lied around the world? And the evidence is mounting that that's what he did. So I oh, really exaggerated oh, some uh, of his own cons. Uh, uh, Let's, let's say euphemistically what you just said. Yes. Uh, really? Uh, uh, yeah. Between oh, the ages no. of 16 and 21, most of his time was spent in prison. Hypothetic, hypothetically, according to science, <laughs> if he passed as many checks as he claimed to during that time, he would have to pay, pass eight to 800 checks per day. <laughs> that oh. was, I found out that Had day no that idea. Santa Claus was oh maybe not God. real. <laughs> That's incredible. So uh, 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 I maintain this bias and I know it comes from the same place that conspiracy theorists uh, want to create more complicated narratives for things than maybe it merits. Um, it, it, where does that come from? And I assume you explore this part of the, the neuroscience in the book. That's interesting. Okay, Frank, you just blowing my mind. Yeah. So the, the con man is, is exaggerating his own cons. <laughs> right. Why wouldn't you, story. though, right? It's yes, like once you hear it, you're like, I yeah, guess, skip the part where I went to jail in France. And right. Just, yeah. 
Right. That's so funny. I guess once you're busted, then I might as well just go for it. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. Well, conspiracy theories do a number of things. They they cut through the messiness of life, the contingent uh, randomness of life. Uh, you know, we're not good at just detecting randomness. You know, there's experiments on this. Like if I have you uh, randomly flip a coin heads or tails a hundred times, just write down what you think it would look like. Right. And then people go, you know, heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, tails. And that's not at all what it looks like. You know, it's like heads, 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 tails, 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 heads, tails, heads, 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 heads. There's streaks of like five, six, seven in a row. And people underestimate that randomness. And, you know, like my, my other favorite example is when the iPod shuffle was first introduced, uh, people complain it's not random. Certain songs are coming up more than other songs that don't ever seem to come up. It's like that. That's actually that randomness. Random. Yeah. Yeah. So Jobs and Company had to program in, you know, make it seem random. And it was actually less random. Right. Well, so that every song gets played once per cycle. That's not random. Right. Well, and, and, and we, we see that also with um, uh, uh, people claiming that their phones are listening to them because an ad that is exact. Oh, I was right. just talking about going to Aspen last week right. and now there's an ad for right. it. Right. My phone's listening right. to me. Right. Whereas meanwhile, uh, you know, I went to chat GPT. I said, I am this old. I am from <laughs> here. I have lived in these places. I currently live here. I have these age children. I have been married this long. What's my favorite board game? And it named three board games that yes. I love. Really? It's like, yeah, apparently we're not that hard to no, figure out as no, humans. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So the messiness of life, um, it's hard to see it because so much of it is random. Like we were talking about, you know, the narrative in, in hindsight, biography bias. Uh, you know, it just it, it doesn't seem like that is the way life goes. It seems like it should be in some more controlled pattern. So the conspiracy theory is a way of mapping that onto the messiness of life. And, you know, it works that way for a lot of things. And it's it's more comforting. I mean, if you think like what's more threatening that the, you know, 18 foot lizard aliens are running the world or that actually nobody's in charge. Nobody really understands why we have inflation and what to do about it. No economist or political scientist can predict more than five years out. You know, the studies on super forecasters. These are the people trained in Bayesian reasoning and signal detection theory. They're really thoughtful about how to predict any kind of specific thing. You know, will Putin invade Ukraine, say, two years ago? You know, it, uh, it, you, uh, more than five years out, nobody's better than 50-50. Because just the randomness, right? So the conspiracy theory cuts through all that and says, no, no, it's these 18 guys in London called the Illuminati. They're running the show. Bill Gates and George Soros, they got it all covered, right? Uh, what? This is a universal question I try to ask everybody. What's a time that you were deeply surprised that something turned out to be true or not true uh, uh, that, that, that you had firmly held on to up until that moment? Well, I was uh, more confident and trusting in our government. Uh, until I started researching the conspiracy book. And, and, and it's like, wait, the CIA was doing what? Yeah. Uh, assassinating foreign leaders, rigging elections. Our government was spying on Martin Luther King. G what? What? And, and these are all backed <laughs> yeah. up with receipts. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, no, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, they try to make him kill himself. Yes. Yeah, exactly. We have the letter. Yeah. Anyway. So a lot of that, you know, it's like, uh, OK, so a lot of conspiracy theories turn out to be true. Right. There are conspiracies. Two or more people plotting in secret to do something to a third party without their consent or knowledge. That's a conspiracy. Happens all the time. Is there a bright line that people can use as a heuristic to kind of gauge whether or not it's a conspiracy likely to be confirmed or not? Or the more 
people that have to be involved, yeah. the less likely the conspiracy theory is true. The more elements that have to come together at just the right time and place, the less likely the theory is to be true. Uh, the more complex and grandiose it is, you know, like world domination, the less likely it is to be true. If it's like, we want to cheat the emission standards so we can make more money like Volkswagen did. That's that's yeah, pretty simple. That's pretty simple. Yeah. One, so, one actor, one Why are goal. they doing it? They yeah. want to make more money. Oh, that's a shocker, right? <laughs> and, uh, so in other words, the more boring the conspiracy, yeah. the more likely yeah. it is to be yeah. real. Yeah, I mean, break in, Watergate break in. You know, just a couple of guys, didn't they fuck that, right? That's a normal conspiracy. That's what happens. And we saw what happened, right? Uh, you know, 19 guys with the backs cutters. How could they do this? You know, bring down the World Trade Center building. That is the only way it could happen, right? Yeah. If you had a thousand operatives controlled by the Bush administration and they all had to be at the right place at the right time and plant the explosive devices in just the floors that the planes were going to hit, the radio control planes, and everybody had to communicate and coordinate the whole thing. It'd be like a Darren Brown you know, yeah, right. <laughs> special, right? It's like, come on. Impossible. And furthermore, what else would be true? Well, you're telling me not one of these thousand people wants to go on 60 Minutes and go, hey, let me tell you exactly. Or some woman, I was dating the guy and he told me the whole story and here it is. And here's his letter to me, you know, whatever. And uh, the WikiLeaks, you know, millions of top secret classified documents, not one mention of 9-11 as inside job, nothing about the fake moon landing, nothing yeah. about UFOs at Area 51, which you would predict would be in there. So you're saying history. WikiLeaks is fake. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's you know, but flat Earth fascinates me uh, as as a conspiracy, mostly because it has to kind of, by its very nature, be the Voltron of a bunch of other <laughs> conspiracy theories. That, like like <laughs> you, it, you, you have to believe if you believe in a flat Earth, you also have to believe that the government or a, 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 an extra governmental organization is in charge of the media and that that's the reason why maps are what they are and photos and yeah. videos that, that disseminate. So it's like, it, it really is this destination of you believing all of these other things that you, you think make the world either make more sense or you are desperate much like my friend, Brian Brushwood is not fooled about uh, the <laughs> HBO show, the rehearsal. You are desperate to not be trick. fooled. It's definitely by, a magic trick. Uh, you are desperate to not be one. fooled by the, uh, by, by, you know, the fact that, Oh, the earth is obviously flat. And, and so everybody else is stupid and I am, I am brilliant. It's one of the hard ones to believe, you know, I mean, you've seen that little graphic of, of the solar system with all the round planets and then the little square flat earth. It's like, well, that was awkward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I, I wonder if uh, I am firmly of the belief that most people at least begin being flat earthers because it is about as intellectually punk rock as you can get. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. if you want to get into arguments all day long, just you know, download these 30 questions, be that guy at the party, and watch people get spun up and pay attention to you. I, no, I, I, I always thought that, that Flat Earth is compelling because it the actual conspiracy is they're hiding it from us. Right. And there's a lot of they're hiding it from us in our in our lives. That's real. Right. Like like you pointed out, there are government secrets that come out that are rumors and whispers. And, and, mm -hmm. and somebody who did a thing and wrote an article in a magazine 30 years ago and then 30 years uh, on, we find the actual documents that say that they were right. Yeah, so there yeah, is a lot yeah, of they're hiding yeah. it from us. But what's and the sometimes they oldest, are hiding it from what's us. The <laughs> oldest, <laughs> that's the hard part. Yeah. But what's the oldest, most ancient thing that they 
capital T-H-E-Y, could be hiding from us. The shape of the earth. Like, nothing is more grandiose and sacred than that. if you go out there and look, it looks flat. doesn't look like it's cursed. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Trust your eyes. Uh, One last question. Uh, I've I've watched you in a number of appearances talk to a wide, wide variety of folks of of different, uh, different positions on the skeptical spectrum. And you you seem to have a wonderful talent of not pushing back, not meeting force with force, but instead you tend to Bruce Lee. Somebody somebody <laughs> will hit you with the moon's not real, and then and and you know like water you'll bend and you'll say, uh, you know what? Many people thought that, uh, including so and so or whatever. Uh, uh, when when did you first of all, assuming I'm reading it right, uh, when did you embrace that, and and where does that come from, and how do you do that? <laughs> it's the Bruce Lee method. It's all water. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, right? Be water, my no friend. No one's ever made that analogy. Thank you. I'll take that because he's one of the greats. All right. <laughs> well, so for, it's more probably temperament. It's just I'm not super confrontational just by temperament. And also I'm interested in why people believe the things that they believe in, not just tell them that it's bullshit and, and debunk it, but that, why would you believe that, right? So a lot of these people, they send me these theories of everything. I'm taking to posting them on Twitter now. You know, Hawking was wrong and Einstein was wrong and Newton was wrong, but I've worked this thing out. You know, it's like, okay, <laughs> you know. Do you realize there's other people that send me these every week, right? You know, right. You're not the only one. Why would you believe that? Did you go to your high school physics teacher and ask him before you, you know, announce to the world you have this new theory? Anyway, so I, I just like the uh, kind of the curiosity of, you know, what led you to believe that? And also when I was young, I believed most of this stuff. In fact, back to Randy, you know, when I was in graduate school the first time in experimental psychology and my mentor was super materialist and reductionist. There's none of this paranormal, supernatural. It's, that's all nonsense. And But I was reading about uh, Thelma Moss's lab at UCLA, paranormal lab, curly in photography and altered states of consciousness and out-of-body experiences. You know, the, you know the, all the Spoon Betty, Uri Geller, you know, this was in the 70s, right? And I was re- seeing all this stuff. I, this is amazing. Maybe there's something to it. Maybe my mentor is just too narrow and maybe science is too restricted and there's this other realm. Who am I? To, you know, what do I, what do I know? Nothing. So... I was pretty open to it until I saw Randy do a bunch of the stuff that Geller was doing. You know, that's what he did on the Tonight Show. I went, oh, huh. Okay, so maybe I'm don't maybe I'm being being fooled here. That that's what kind of pushed me down the skeptical route a little bit. Do, do you think there's a bias for people in sports of all varieties to? want to believe in pseudoscientific things? Or, no, well, athletes yeah, are notoriously superstitious because whatever works for them exactly. at that moment. Yeah. yeah, it's just, but, you know, and of one. So, yeah, and I tried all that stuff. I tried all kinds of crazy alternative things just to see performance differences. What, and athletes are bad about that. What, what's <laughs> one that you look back and you're most surprised that that, that you're into? Uh, well, let's see, there was this uh, iridology where you get your iris red. You know, they look like at the a fingerprint. Little, on your eyes and oh your kidney is bad i'm like my kidney's down there what are are you talking about (laughs) right anyway so some of that stuff uh it's just kind of crazy but it was exploratory but but back to back to your question i i'm i am deeply curious why people believe so i like to in in any case i think it works as a strategy like and just instead of telling somebody that's all bullshit you know just well where did you hear that or what what would it take to change your mind you know and usually they go Huh, I never thought about that. Like, yeah. And if you just let that sit, rather than saying, I'm going to now debunk you and humiliate you in front of your friends, which is 
you know, the wall's going to go up. They're not going to talk to you anymore. Just, to, just think about this. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. You might be right. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, just saying that because it's possible. I'm not omniscient. What do I know? Right. I, I don't know everything. Uh, one of the things that we come to at the end of this season in trying to discuss Randy and specifically uh, his role in Project Alpha, how he did make it so much larger than it would have been otherwise, even if he didn't totally run it in the way that the popular legend, largely crafted by Randy, uh, uh, says, is explaining how much he meant to the skeptic movement as a whole. And Project Alpha did a lot to help him, you know, propel him to that position and specifically looking at the skeptic movement through the aughts and, and early tens where uh, the amazing meeting was something that was a big movement. It seemed like it was having a, a, a moment in the sun. Books, you know, were beat, were, were, it felt like two or three times a year, major mm-hmm. celebrities were, that hadn't normally dabbled in that were now writing in this field. Uh, and then the amazing meeting kind of wanes. Randy takes a step back. Randy is now no longer with us. And it feels like, at least to me, somebody that kind of left the skeptic community actively many years ago, it seems far more tribal and atomized than it was at that moment. But I'm not you. Mm. You are one of the mm. the the uh, uh, the people, the titans of that industry. I was curious your perspective to that I, idea. I think like most social movements, it goes through different phases and they do splinter. A lot of you know feminists or Marxists Ayn Rand objectivists, you know, they all splinter and fight. There's a lot of infighting. I've, I've noticed this back when I was reading a lot of Ayn Rand and then there was like some story about how she's kicking people out of the group because they're not objectivists enough. They're not libertarian enough. And then some libertarian telling some other libertarian, you're a Marxist for, for this one little thing. You want it's like, you know, this isn't too healthy. Right. And then I saw atheists do this. You know, first of all, atheism was not a big thing all the way up until the late 90s. You know, when the science wars kind of took off and science and religion. Ooh, OK. And then Dawkins book really flipped it, uh, you know, along with a few of the other, the four horsemen, so to speak. But they weren't the only ones, but really Dawkins. And then it was like a, a split. Like, are you militant enough in your atheism? So that was one cut. And then there was atheism plus, which is you also have to be a social justice warrior and have these embrace, fully embrace 100 percent, these kind of far left, woke, progressive political issues that have nothing to do with atheism. Right. It's like, why is this happening? This, you know, we're a pretty small tent, right? <laughs> it, it, it does seem like the natural order of things is the moment you get into a clubhouse, you have to figure out what are the sub clubhouses, you yes, know, right. It's, it's uh, um, uh, I don't know if you've read uh, uh, the status game by Will Storr, but uh, 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 oh boy, that's a good one. Uh, uh, put a pin in that. Uh, Michael Shermer, thank you for all of your time. This has been absolutely oh, amazing. Uh, uh, thank you for the kind words that you said about World's Greatest Con. What can we promote for you? <laughs> Oh, well, I'm interested in cons. Yeah, my, I have talked to a lot of my guests on the show. And I'm going to have you guys on again here. We do this, mm-hmm. We'll do this again, but I'm going to dig deeper into cons. because, Really, it comes down to, uh, you know, what do people believe and why and how irrational are we? To me, that's really interesting. Anyway, michaelshermer.com, skeptic.com is, you know, the webpage for the, for the magazine. And uh, my book's on Amazon or whatever. Yeah. Uh, right now, it's uh, conspiracy is the latest one. Conspiracy, yeah. Why the rational believe the irrational? Excellent. Yeah. So I'm, I am deciding that people are rational. Well, then why do they believe irrational things? Okay, let's. I'll show you how they do it. Right. Perfect. Can't wait. Fantastic. All right. Thank, Thank you, Michael. You, gentlemen.
This episode of World's Greatest Con is written by Justin Robert Young and me, Brian Brushwood, your humble host. Production and research by Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas, with additional production by Will Saddleberg. Original music by Carson Pace. Support us directly and keep the world's greatest cons coming by heading on over to patreon.com slash greatest con. Get an ad-free feed, early access to information, and behind-the-scenes extras. Very special thanks go to Banachek and Mike Edwards for allowing us to tell their story. We greatly encourage you to see Banachek's new show, Mind Games, at the Strat Hotel and Casino on the Las Vegas Strip. Additional thanks go to George Slatter Productions, which, along with contemporary news articles, retrospectives, and archive videos, made for the bulk of our research. Write us to worldsgreatestcon at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.